This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Adele Diamond. She is a professor of developmental cognitive neuroscience at the University of British Columbia. I spoke with her on September 30th, 2009 in Vancouver, Canada. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. So, Mitch, I, I am hearing this um, echo thing again. Almost worse than before, yeah. Should we just forget it? I'll just live with tick, it. Tick. Oh. Hmm? Do you hear it? I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, it should be exactly the same as All before. right, okay. All right, well, let's just let's do this. Okay, um... I'm not sure what you'd like me to talk about. Did, what did you have for lunch? What I had for I didn't have anything for breakfast, but for lunch I had um, a sandwich with avocado and lettuce and tomato and a salad and Perrier. Are you still getting an echo, or you can't tell? I'm good. Yeah, okay. I'm the only one who's getting an echo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it might be just the hardware. Okay. The All right. Hardware and it's- All right. So. Um, Don't start quite yet. Okay, so whoever I'm speaking with, whether I'm talking to a quantum physicist or a religious leader, I, I always like to um, I like to hear a little bit about the spiritual background of your life, of your childhood, what you grew up in. I grew up in um, a reasonably uh, cons- a reasonably religious Jewish home, so it was conservative Jewish, uh, which my mother defined as meant our house was kosher but our stomachs weren't. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we we um, uh, observed the Jewish holidays. We kept kosher in the house. I was bat mitzvahed. I learned. I went to Hebrew school. I learned to read Hebrew, but not understand it. So I can still read it and not understand what word I'm reading. Um, and uh, Judaism is a fairly important part of who I am. I am married to a Mormon, oh. so we have a Mormon Jewish home, uh, and. Um, I, th- I think that's a that's okay. enough of a background. All right. um, I've read uh, in other interviews you've given or things that you've written that you didn't aspire to be a scientist in your early life, but th- that you did love, you always loved learning. Is that right? That's right. What did you um, study when you went to college? Uh, when I went to college, I studied mostly anthropology, a little bit philosophy. Um, so my majors was sociology, anthropology, which was one department, and also psychology. But I spent more time in sociology, anthropology than psychology okay. and wanted to continue studying in those three fields, sociology, anthropology, and the social aspect of psychology in graduate school. Didn't want to do anything that sounded like um, hard science or lab science. So you know, how would you answer the question of how you went from there to becoming a a founder of this field <laughs> called developmental cognitive neuroscience. How did that happen? Uh, uh, it happened because my original thesis topic didn't work out. Um, I was going to study a lot of the sociology, psychology, philosophy I've read said that people needed to feel like they were masters of their fate. If you don't feel like you're in control of what's going to happen to you, you feel learned helpless, you feel depressed, you feel suicidal. But it seemed to me that everybody I read was Western, and it didn't seem to me to necessarily be intrinsically human like everybody was saying. It seemed to me it could be cultural. It could be learned, and I could imagine other cultures where that wouldn't be a problem. So I was going to go study in the South Pacific, 
which seemed to me the most idyllic place I could think of, and see if it was true in the culture there. But I didn't think I was coming up with a good way to study this because you start to run into problems like what do you care about being in control of and what does it mean to be in control? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't think any of the famous people at Harvard advising me were coming up with a good way to study it either. Now, this, for some reason, didn't seem to bother them. They said, <laughs> you'll go and you'll do great work and it'll be wonderful. And I'm thinking, you guys are crazy. I picked the South Pacific so I could have this idyllic time in paradise. And if I don't think I'm going to get a thesis out of it, I'm going to be miserable and worried, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? So I gave the money back. Hmm and gave the thesis topic back, and then I had to come up with something. And my first year in graduate school, Jerry Kagan was jumping up and down, literally jumping out of his seat, about all the changes we see in babies' behavior in the first year of life. Mm. It can't all be maturation. So what, what decade are we talking here? This is um, uh, the late 1970s. Okay. So um, in 1980, I started my dissertation following up on this idea of Jerry's. Jerry's idea was that the changes we see in babies in cognitive abilities can't be all maturation because they change, their minds change all over the world in similar ways at the same time. Mm-hmm. But they're living in totally different circumstances. How can it just be experience and learning? There has to also be a maturational component. So that was the original spark that started my dissertation. And um, in graduate school, I could only study the behavior. I studied how children's minds develop. But the hypothesis uh, motivating it was that there was a change in a part of the brain called prefrontal cortex, Mm -hmm. which was making these cognitive advances possible. So to get evidence on the brain, I did a postdoc in neuroanatomy where I could actually study the brain directly and combine that evidence with the evidence I had gotten on baby's behavior in the dissertation. So there's a lot of talk now from many different corners that our entire Concept, concept of education needs to change, needs to move out of the industrial age into the 21st century. And you and I are talking as part of a conference where there are a lot of very creative people, including the Dalai Lama, um, but also educators and scientists talking about this. And, you know, so when I look at what you're doing, um, um, it's also suggesting a change in education and from a very specific vantage point, informed by science. So let me just say it this way This is, and, and ask you if this is right. That, so one of the things you're saying is that, is that, in, that education is also not, not just about what we teach and what kind of information we put into brain, but understanding what's happening in the frontal precortex and working with that knowledge to help children develop and learn to learn better. Is that... Um. I think a lot of what you need in school is to learn uh, skills because the content you'll forget. A lot of the content you're going to forget mm-hmm. and the content you can always look up anyway. But we pretend like we're learning that content and we're supposed to remember it. Yes, and, <laughs> and you know, educators are worried that you need that content for the exams that you're going to take. Mm-hmm. But um, what's more important is that you should want to learn. What's more important is for you to know how to find that information if you need it. What's more important is for you to learn how to problem solve and use that information. Um, but I, I agree that education needs to change, but 
the way your question started, which is move beyond the in industrial age, suggested that we move forward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I see is that we need to look back because hmm. I think there was a lot of wisdom of previous generations, of the evolutionary past of our species that we're ignoring because we tend to think that we're going to be modern and we can do better than our, our uh, parents and grandparents did. But there are certain things that have been part of the human condition for thousands of years, and I think that they've probably been part of the human condition for a good reason. Okay. Otherwise, they would have been weeded out. Music has always been part. Mm-hmm. Dance has been part. Storytelling has been part. The play of children has been part. And there are good reasons why these have been part. And the schools are tending to think, oh, my God, we don't have time for play. And we don't have time for the arts. And we don't have a budget for music. That's right. And we have to focus on the academic content because they're going to get tested at the end of the year. And we have to make sure they do well on these tests. But our research and others is showing that if the children have more time to play, they do better on these academic outcome measures than if they spend more time in direct academic instruction. And things like the arts or sports or any of these other things, they develop your cognitive skills dependent on prefrontal cortex, like sustaining attention, like being able to hold information in mind, because you have to hold complicated sequences in mind for a lot of these things. You have to um, flexibly adjust when different things come at you. Um, They uh, uh, speak to your... Um, social aspect because you're part of a group, right. which is terribly important to doing well. They um, also use your body, and we know that um, uh, if you're physically healthy, your prefrontal cortex and brain work better, specifically your prefrontal cortex. And leading a sedentary life is terrible for your brain health or your cognitive health. Right. Um, so the, the arts and sports and play tend to incorporate all these things in an organic way. And I think it's a shame that children are getting less of this instead of more. So, I mean, something, an implication of that that's really interesting is that um, previous ways of not just educating but living, the whole context for education um, was in fact more responsive to what science is now learning about the prefrontal cortex than what we developed, especially in the 20th century. Yes. Huh. Yes. A lot of the the old practices had an awful lot of wisdom in them. Um, at one of the sessions with the Dalai Lama yesterday, uh, Stephen Covey talked about the talking stick, yeah. which is a tradition among many of the indigenous right. people of North America. And with the talking stick, only the person who has the stick can talk. And he's supposed to keep that stick until he feels understood. Now, the program I've studied in the schools, which was developed in the 20th century, is a a little bit of a 20th century version of this, although the developers didn't know that. They they (laughs) have all of the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds in the class, everybody get into pairs, and each gets a picture book. And they're to tell the story that goes with the pictures in their book to the other child, like the ugly duckling or something. And they're all, all excited. They want to tell their stories. Nobody wants to listen. Everybody wants to tell their story. And if you ask a four-year-old or a five-year-old to wait, it's pretty worthless. So they give one child a picture of a mouth, and they give the other child a picture of an ear. And they explain that ears don't talk, ears listen. And with that concrete reminder, the child actually listens. Hmm. And it's as if the child with the mouth has the talking stick. Right. Now, the talking stick has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years with the indigenous people. It's not really a new invention. Mm-hmm. And there are, there's a lot of wisdom of the cultures that we could learn from right. instead of thinking that we have to invent everything de novo. Hmm. 
Right. And listening is an incredible life skill. And it's true that, well, I mean, <laughs> so, so the concept of the talking stick, in fact, is not just, it's not cultivating talking, it's cultivating listening. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at two levels. One, it's the simple level of not interrupting the other person and letting the other person finish, and we take turns, the, the norm of role-taking that young children need to learn. But at a more um, deep level, it's also to really listen, right. to really listen and hear so that the person who's talking feels understood. And that's so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Peck in the book um, The Road Less Traveled talks about the greatest gift parents can give their children is to love them. And the, way, the best way to show your child that you love them is to just take the time to listen, mm. to really listen. Mm. It's such a gift we can give our children. Right. So um, let's talk about some of the concepts and premises of the work you do um, and the work you do in this real kind of burgeoning field, um, this notion of executive function, which I've also seen described, this kind of helped me, as a, the science of attention. Um, how would you how would you explain what executive function is to a to a layperson? Executive functions are what you need when you can't go on automatic, when your initial tendencies would take you in the wrong direction or would not be sufficient. So it's when things change, it's when things are new, and there are three basic executive functions. One is inhibitory control, Mm -hmm. the ability to stop yourself from doing the wrong thing or doing the most natural thing and instead do something else. And that's the biggest difference between children and adults. Children have very poor inhibitory control. Other cognitive abilities are quite developed in children, like memory, but their ability to mm, restrain their spontaneity, Mm -hmm. to uh, show discipline, is much weaker than in adults. And you need inhibitory control to stay on task when you're bored or when you meet an initial failure. You need inhibitory control to focus in on something in the environment so that you're not overwhelmed by all the other things around. You need inhibitory control. For example, let's say you see an old friend that you haven't seen in years. And your first reaction on seeing your old friend is, my God, how much weight you gained. (laughs) But you don't say that. Instead, you exercise inhibitory control, and you instead say something to make your friend feel good. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, uh, if you think about it more in terms of things the Dalai Lama talks about, the Dalai Lama talks about how easy it is when you get hurt to react by hurting the next person. But if you exercise inhibitory control, you can say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I do this, I'm going to get in the cycle of tit for tat. Is that really what I want to do? Maybe the other, what the other person did was coming from the other person's hurt. Or maybe I misunderstood what the other person meant. Maybe I should wait and just see if what I really want to do. Um, so being able to exercise inhibitory control can, can help in many ways. Another aspect of executive function is working memory. It's holding information in mind and playing with it. Mm -hmm. And you need working memory for anything that unfolds over time. Because anything that unfolds over time, you have to relate what happened earlier to what's happening now. So to understand any conversation, to understand anything you read, you need working memory. 
You also need working memory for creativity because create the essence of creativity is holding things in mind and disassembling them and putting them together in new ways. Hmm. That's where you need working memory. And the last executive function is cognitive flexibility. It's being able to switch your perspective or switching the way you're thinking about things, being able to think outside the box. And, of course, that's also an aspect of creativity. And that can be really important for problem solving, for maybe the way we've been trying to solve it is wrong. So maybe we should think about it a whole new way. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we shouldn't think of it as a problem. Maybe it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So those are the basic aspects of executive function. And out of that, uh, more sophisticated executive functions like planning and problem solving get built up. Mm -hmm. And negatively... um Poor executive function in pathology is associated with mental illness, right? Yes. You see poor executive function in a lot of mental illnesses like ADHD, depression, schizophrenia, autism. Prefrontal cortex is the latest region of the brain to develop over evolution and the latest develop in, within a lifespan. So it's the new kid on the block. Okay. And it's the most fragile. Uh-huh. It's in the right place to get hurt if you ever fall. It's, it's the earliest to go in aging, the latest to develop. So often when anything goes wrong with the brain, you'll mm-hmm. see some aspect of prefrontal function impaired. So Not always, but often. Right. I mean, so something that really strikes me, um, just looking at the language around this, like this term executive function is very dry. And then the program that you work in is tools of the mind, which sounds very serious also. But intriguingly, um, a real centerpiece of actually cultivating this in children is dramatic play. <laughs> talk, talk to me about the um, there's a there are some founding figures in this in this connection between executive function and uh, dramatic play. Lev Vygotsky, a name that most of us haven't heard, but I'm suspecting that as this field grows, uh, maybe a name that's more commonly known. Um, Vygotsky and Loria. We're, we're giants in Russia in psychology and in neuroscience. And Vygotsky emphasized that social development and cognitive development were intimately integrated. And if you want to develop one, you need to develop the other. So we develop cognitively by interacting and being in a social world. And um, if you think about social dramatic play and the three executive functions I mentioned, first of all, let's say you're playing cops and robbers. You have to use working memory to remember what role you picked and what role your friends picked, right? Because if you want to go to the cop, you don't want to accidentally go to the robber. That could be disastrous. And you have to inhibit acting out of character. You, mm-hmm. Let's say you're playing may- mommy and baby. You may know exactly what mommy should do, and she's not doing it, and you want to terribly go in there and correct the situation. But you're the baby. You can't. You have to stay in character. And then your friends may take that scenario in new ways that you never expected. So on the fly, in real time, you have to flexibly adjust. Mm -hmm. So in this play, you're exercising working memory, you're exercising inhibition, and you're exercising cognitive flexibility, all three executive functions. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it in a natural situation. What was it? um, I think, was it Vygotsky who said, who maintained that, um, that a child's ability to play creatively with other children is a better indicator of future academic success than, than IQ. I think you've also said that, um, where is this, that I, that, um, discipline, hmm? that discipline is a better indicator than IQ. Yes. Which when I was growing up in the 1960s, 70s, 
you know, everybody got IQ tests. But I, I remember being aware even then that they didn't know what to do with it, right? <laughs> and that they would, they would tell you, well, here's your IQ and there's your friend's IQ, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but oh, I, you see, but, when I was growing yeah. up in the 1970s, they segregated us by IQ. Mm-hmm. So they had the intellectually gifted classes whose children had scored higher in IQ. And if you got a super high IQ and you were a girl in New York City, you could go to Hunter High School. Okay. <laughs> um, so IQ meant a lot in terms of tracking back then. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it turns out the work of Angela Duckworth and Marty Seligman shows that even in college, discipline, being able to exercise discipline and keep at it and practice and study and finish your assignments and start your assignments when you need to is much more important than IQ, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of hopeful because then you don't have to worry that, you know, gee, I wasn't born with this high IQ, so right. I can't achieve. And the evidence is that that's not so. Mm-hmm. So tell me... Um so this is this is is play, but it's formal play. It's structured play, um, or how would you? It's it's not um, free form. It's yeah, t- it's, it's not, not a chaotic classroom where everybody's doing their own. That's thing. right. So so play is important, but it's not like you just tell the children to go and play. Yeah. So for example, in tools, they have the children write down a plan of what they want to do in their dramatic play. It may be pictures or just the first letter of the words of what they mean, but they write down something, which is their plan. And often, initially in the beginning of the school year, the children want to change it after a couple of minutes. I'm tired of this. I want to go do something else. And the teacher comes back and brings their plan and says, wait a minute, you committed to doing this. You need to continue to do it for another 10, 15 minutes. And that's really important because that's really where the executive function comes in. The having to do it when your first inclination isn't to do it. So so it's not that it's it's not that it's structured in the sense of the teacher telling them what to do, but it's structured in the sense of the teacher intervening at the key points to help. And something that I've understood that your work has helped demonstrate is that um, it's important that this be a more of an immersive experience, that it's something that's reinforced throughout the day, not just, I don't know, your dramatic play block. That's right. Actually, this is before me, and it was it, uh, it's something that the developers of Tools of the Mind, Deborah Leong and Elena Botrova, found. Mm-hmm. They first tried Tools of the Mind as a module, just like you suggested. So like maybe from 10 to 11 in the morning, we'll do social dramatic play. And they found that if they did that, children improved on what they practiced, but it didn't generalize. It didn't generalize to other contexts or to other executive function skills. In order to get the generalization supports for and challenges in executive function had to be part and parcel of what the children did all day long. And so, for example, the the reading example I gave you of the mouth and the ears is a way of including it in a literacy activity. So what they do is included in all activities, math, literacy, whatever. And as the children get better and better, they gradually remove the supports more and more. So they keep challenging the children. And this is very different from traditional education these days because either teachers assume that children this young can't exercise executive function, so they don't let them try. And if they don't try, they don't practice and get better. Or the teachers let them try but don't provide any support, so they fail and they get yelled at. Here, they're getting success experiences. They're able to succeed because they're given supports. So they get praised for what a good listener they are instead of getting yelled at for what a terrible listener. And as they get better and better at being able to do this, the supports are gradually removed. 
An example in a math context is a lot of children will do mirror writing, like they'll write a six reversed. Right. Now, that's very normal. But a lot of teachers will pull their hair out about this. So they might have the child write six a thousand times. It doesn't help, but they'll try whatever they can to try to get the child not to do it. And uh, uh, Elena Botrova has a very simple way. It's not onerous. It's not doesn't make the child feel bad. And after an afternoon or an evening, the mirror writing is gone. What she says is when you go home tonight and you do your math homework, every time you're supposed to write a six, put down your pencil and pick up a red pencil. That's all she says. That's the whole instruction. No, you're a bad kid. None of this, you're a bad kid. Do you, you know. Uh, and the reason it works is because the child has an automaticity to do this mirror writing. And what, what the child really needs to do is take a moment mm. and think mm. and do what you really know you should do, but is not your first inclination. But if you ask a child this young to wait, it doesn't help. That is really interesting. So it gives the child some way to wait, which is mm-hmm. the time it takes to put down the pencil and pick up the red pencil. So, you know, what my um, inquiry and conversation is always driving towards is what, what does this tell, how does this expand our understanding of, of, of who we are, of what it means to be human? And I did have a really interesting conversation about two years ago with a guy named Stuart Brown who runs something called the National Institute for Play in California. Have you heard of him? And he's a, he's a physician. And he's actually, um, part of what they're doing is trying to take seriously a lot of studies that have mostly been done on uh, animals rather than human beings, but about how we're hardwired to play. And, and what we know, and that, that this is part of human vitality. Um, you know, that it's not extra, like you said at the very beginning. Um, it's not optional. It's not the first thing that should be cut. Um, and, and, I mean, so, but even in what you just said about um, part of what this does is helps children stop, that's an important spiritual discipline. Discipline. I mean, I had written in my notes when I was preparing that... Um, that executive function is related to an ability to reflect, which is also part, if we look at all the great spiritual traditions, um, or even just about what we know about being a whole human being, a very critical discipline, not just to learning, but to being. Do you think about things like that as you're, as you're doing this work? Um, a little bit. Um, uh it's interesting that you, you talked about executive function as also um, disciplining attention or something mm-hmm. like that. Because attention isn't usually a word I use, but I think the difference is just a matter of semantics. So you could call working memory holding information in mind and working with it, or you could call it keeping your attention focused on something and working with it. Right. So I think it's just semantics. And in fact, the neural bases of working memory and attention are, are pretty identical. Um, uh, so certainly it's very much concerned with attention. It's very much concerned with also um, resisting ways that could be hurtful to yourself or to another. So, for example, when you stop and reflect, you may realize that What's hurting you is the meaning that you've read into what somebody else did, Hmm. not actually the act of what they did, but the intention you're impugning to it, and that you might be wrong about the intention you're impugning. 
they may, it may have been done for a totally different reason. So these are real moral and ethical um, impulses that are cultivated in this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think also that um, I think you learn things by doing, which is why one of the reasons I think tools of the mind is so good. You know, if I asked you who's going to learn more, the driver or the passenger about the route, you'd say the driver without mm-hmm. even thinking twice. And you know why. The driver had to use it and the passenger's passively sitting there. But somehow when we make schools, we forget about that. And we have the children passively sitting there and the teachers <laughs> up really in the really uncomfortable chairs. <laughs> right. And the teachers up there actively using it. And they're not going to learn as well if they're just listening. They need to actively use it. And I think the way to learn the disciplines like um, reflection or being able to stop is to keep trying it, is to keep um, exercising it. That's the way it develops, not to hear somebody tell you that you should do this mm-hmm. or why it's so important to do this, but to actually experience it and keep experiencing right. and keep trying and have people help you in in ways that maybe would help you develop it more. And I mean, if you just, if you think about the whole lifespan, right, um, someone saying to you that you should listen, you should, <laughs> right, especially and you, as you go That's through right. life, there are lots That's of people right. you don't want to listen to, or, or that you should have empathy. Those are easy words, very hard practices in so many real life situations. Yes, yes. And it, it takes a long time. It's not like you can say, I can sit back on my chair and say, you know, I've solved that problem. It's yeah. a lifetime right. of work. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so something that int- interests me about you is you're also a dancer. I mean, it seems to me that this part of yourself, whether and you, I don't think you had a, any kind of scientific um, or academic motivation, but you, you've actually kept that part of yourself alive. And we did kind of touch on this. I mean, when I was looking at your dancing, um, I was thinking, I was, I was wondering, is it possible that at other times in history, what we call formal play or structured play was actually part of regular human interaction? And, you know, a lot of the conversations I've had across the years, even, the, say, with Pentecostals, um, a Pentecostal sociologist who talked about and that's one of the fastest growing forms of Christianity globally. And she really, she felt that one thing that um, is so appealing and important to people is that it's a full body experience. It's cathartic. And she talked about how in our cultures, um, religion, all kinds of religion used to play this this. Uh, this role where people would sing and dance and cry and it would be physical and emotional and spiritual all at the same time. And now, like, say, in Western Christianity, you sit in pews and you sit up straight and you listen, <laughs> right? And you, listen, right. and you listen to the, to the monologue from up there. It's actually very much like what happens in a classroom. Yes, yes. And the more of you that gets involved, the body, the emotions, everything, mm-hmm. the more you get out of it and the more... The more you get out of it in many ways, because it changes the brain, the nurtures the brain, the social nurtures the brain, the joy nurtures the brain, the physical activity nurtures the brain. Right. And it also nurtures your physical health. You're going to be more physically healthy if you're socially connected, if you're, fi- if you're physically fit, if you're active, if you're using your mind actively. Um, uh, and... Um, the dance, the I love all kinds of partner dance. Right. You've been in dance troops, but it seems like you've always 
maintain this as part of your life. Yes, but the the dance that I the dance that I that's my first love is American contra dance. Okay. And American contra dance was just what you're talking about. It was a part of the social fabric. When the settlers came over, it was a way for everybody to get together on a Saturday night. And it had to be easy because all these non-dancers had to be able to do it. And it was also socially leveling because the banker's wife might dance with the farmer because everybody got together uh, for the dance. So it was very much a part of the social fabric of life. It wasn't a little side activity. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you consciously experienced that part of yourself to flow into what you come to understand and appreciate as a scientist in this tools of the mind work? I don't see tools of the mind connecting so much. Okay. But I see other things connecting. In my talks, I often end my talks by talking about and showing a video about two programs. One is called El Sistema, the program of uh, Jose Abreu, um, which uh, is the Youth and Children's Orchestra of Venezuela. And it's been so successful in Venezuela that about 25 other Latin American countries have adopted it. And the National Dance Institute, NDI, which was founded by Jacques D'Amboise, a remarkable ballet dancer in New York. Both programs have been around since the early 1970s, the mid-1970s. They've reached hundreds of thousands of children, mostly poor children. They take all comers. They don't charge anything. The orchestra program even includes children who are deaf. The dance program even includes children in wheelchairs. And both, both programs address all the parts of a human being. They both involve physical, visual, motor coordination. They are, exercise executive functions. You have to sustain attention. You have to hold sequences in mind. Um, they uh, address your emotions. They give you joy. They give you self-confidence and pride. You feel like you're a member of a right. social group right. where everybody contributes. And you're an important mm-hmm. part of this group. And I would love to see research on these. You know, to the naked eye, people give you testimonials all the time about how it's changed their lives. And you can see how amazing it is when you look at the video. But we need research to show that it does this. So I keep trying to encourage people to go do the research about this. <laughs> Maybe you'll have to do it yourself one of these days. <laughs> I would, one of the things that is said um, of the work you're doing is that... Um, one of the really important impact and an important impact might be that it could help uh, reduce the achievement gap, which we often see between children from wealthier backgrounds. Children, it's often um, um, divided along socioeconomic lines. Now, wh- what is it? Um, what is it about poverty or socioeconomic uh, inequality that puts children at a disadvantage in terms of executive function? It's, uh, we don't know. Okay, we know that poor children are behind. But we don't know why. Um, there could be any number of reasons. But if you look at children who are only four or five years of age, the difference in executive functions or in academic skills between rich and poor kids or black and white kids is not very big. It's a small difference. But what they find is these differences increase every year. That's what they refer to as the widening achievement gap, that the difference in academic achievement between rich and poor, black and white, increases each year. And I think that maybe the mechanism for why it increases are feedback loops that go in opposite directions. So if you start school with terrible executive function, you're blurting out the answer all the time. You're jumping out of your seat. You're grabbing things from other children. 
you're always getting yelled at by the teacher. And you're having trouble doing your assignments. You're having trouble paying your attention. So you're getting poor grades. So your self-esteem is getting assaulted all the time in school. So you think, I'm out of here. I'm a lousy student. Teacher doesn't like me. Teacher thinks I'm no good. I want out of here. Or you start school with good executive function. And the teacher sees that you pay attention in class and you finish your assignments. And the teacher thinks, why didn't I have a whole class of children right, like you? Right. What a gem you are. And you think, I kind of like this. I'm going <laughs> to invest in this. I'm getting strokes here. So you could see how a small difference at the beginning could lead to bigger and bigger differences later on. Because one child wants to invest in this and work on it and get better. And the other child thinks, I want to get as far away from here as possible. So I think if you can nip that dynamic in the bud and help the children who start out with not such good executive functions to be good, then they can think, I like this too, and Mm -hmm. I'm good at this too. I'm a good listener. I'm a good student. And as you said, um, it is a matter of being good rather than who's innately smarter. That's right. Or who innately has more creative potential. Totally. Um, so have you experienced in using this program that that gap has um, has been reduced, or can you know that yet? We really don't know that because you need long-term studies to do that, and our study was just looked at the end of a year. We're involved in a study now where we're going to follow kindergarten children until they're 12 years of age, so we will eventually be able to address that question. But what they're finding, again, they need the studies to show this for real, but what they're finding anecdotally is that Tools of the Mind is uh, uh, remarkably good with, with children who have um, learning disabilities or, or developmental disorders like autism or ADHD. Right. And they kind of expected that ADHD kids would do well because they address executive functions. But they were really surprised to see how well the children with autism did. Mm-hmm. They're not sure why. It could be because they use a lot of these nonverbal signs like the mouth and the ear. So maybe that helps. You don't need language. Maybe it helps that you tend to be in small groups, which isn't as overwhelming as being in a large group. Maybe it's that they're included in everything. Like in the social dramatic play, they're included. They're part of the group. They're not social isolates. Mm -hmm. We don't know why, but the anecdotal evidence is that they seem to do quite well in embedded classrooms where they're with typically developing children. So when you say tools of the mind, again, is this, um, this is an approach that would infuse the, the entire school day. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Or, and, and then there are these specific techniques, including dramatic play and these kinds of... Um, that are part of tools. The, the right. mouth and the ear, the listening. Right. That are part of exercise. tools. But I don't mean to say that tools of the mind is the end all and be all. Mm-hmm. I think there are lots of ways of of helping children do well and of developing executive functions. And I think tools of the mind is a good way, but I don't think it's the only way. And it's also only for preschool and kindergarten. So you would need something else for the older grades. Okay. So right now the work has focused on those younger ages. Right. But is it your sense also in terms of what you know about brain development that that really is the critical period, that if you can make a difference when children are five or six, that 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 will give them a, um, an advantage when they get to be 9, 10, 11, 12? I think the reason why it can be critical is because of feedback loops. Okay. But otherwise, the brain is developing and prefrontal cortex is developing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Prefrontal cortex isn't fully mature until your 20s. Um, but, you know, 
think about the, 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 the child who, who, who learns from their parents that the world is a place they can trust and feel safe in, or that they learn because people couldn't be around to be with them or didn't know how to be with them, that the world is not a trustworthy place, that they're going to get hurt in this world, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe just emotionally hurt, but, you know, so that this is a scary place. This is a place you can't trust. Well, then it's very hard to change that later. It doesn't mean it can't be changed, but it's hard mm-hmm. because if the child is now really distrustful, how do you get close enough to show the child that the child, you, they can trust you and that you won't hurt them? It's very hard to reverse things. Right. It's much easier to get them started on the right trajectory early. It doesn't mean they can't be reversed later, but it's like trying to prevent a problem versus trying to correct the problem later. It's so much easier, right. and you're going to get so much better outcome if you can prevent the problem from the get-go. Uh, did I hear in one of the sessions here at this conference in Vancouver that British Columbia has instituted a fourth R <laughs> yes, um, as in its educational philosophy? So tell me about that. And is that connected to the work you're doing, or does it create room for it? Yes. Um, so British Columbia has said that socio-emotional development, developing good people who are good citizens, is a critical goal of our education system, as critical as any of the other goals. And um, it's something that parents and teachers and educational administrators take very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so they want very much to help develop children who are, who are kind, who are caring, who are compassionate who know that bullying is wrong, who know that helping another is right, um, and who do it. Um, And it absolutely creates room for tools. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have tools of the mind in British Columbia yet, but many people in British Columbia are interested in bringing it here. Mm -hmm. And there's a real responsiveness. Also, one of the ways that British Columbia, and I think Canada in general, differs from the U.S., is that government officials are much more open to research evidence and to having that research evidence inform what's happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. And admitted- we should say you're American and and have spent more of your professional life in the United States. Right. Too, right? I'm, so I'm you, American. Yeah. Um, but I'm just amazed at how open the government of Canada is at all levels, the city level, the provincial level, and the national level, to hearing the research evidence and to then modifying their policies in the light of evidence. They are, want to be evidence-based, and they listen to the evidence. I was here only three days in this country, and they invited me to be in a press conference with the prime minister. I've never met the U.S. president. <laughs> I will probably never meet the U.S. president. Right. And that's a real difference, I think. And did they, so is it reading, writing, arithmetic, and reflection? Is that what they've said? Is that, what, is that the catchword for this developing good people, developing kind people? That sounds really nice. I've I think never I heard, heard it. it. Okay, but. well, maybe I made it up. <laughs> no, it could be, and I've never heard yeah. it. Now, um, I think that... So, the Dalai Lama came here a few years ago, and um, and you've also been part of... Have you been part of the Mind Life? Or? Not for very long, but right. I was at the Mind Life meeting in Dharamsala in India in April. Right. So, um, and I, I, I do sense that I, I don't know if his visits here or the connections he's forged have had how much they've had to do with that, but I sense that it's one factor, that it's created a certain energy and a feeling that something needs to be done rather than just talked about. Um, and I, you know, and, I, and obviously 
there are some really interesting, well, let's just say um, there's some really interesting parallels uh, and overlap if you talk about attention, executive function, and then you think about the word mindfulness. Clearly, uh, That's right. those are kindred concepts. That's right. But tell me about your um, exposure, that encounter with with this Buddhist-led um, dialogue between science, science and, and spiritual figures. And how has that flowed in, informed, challenged you? Well, the Dalai Lama is very concerned with taking nice-sounding statements and putting them into action. And so when I visited him in Dharamsala and talked about Tools of the Mind program, I asked how they help young children to develop their attention uh, in Dharamsala, how the the schools help the Tibetan children. And... um, First of all, the Tibetan schools assume that very young children can't exercise executive function, so they don't try. Can't. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, but Jimpa, the, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, said that one thing that he thinks they do that helps is memorization. They emphasize memorization so that they may have a very long passage, and each day you'll get a small portion of it to memorize. And you have to remember that and all the portions you've gotten earlier, and eventually you've memorized the whole thing. And that sort of brought me back in my thinking to what we were talking about before, about our pushing aside the wisdom of the ages. Mm-hmm. I had to memorize stuff in school, and I hated it. And I, and we've advanced to the point where we now poo-poo memorization, and, and that's old-fashioned, and there's no point. We even poo-poo correct spelling, which drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it may be that while there's no necessary reason to memorize things, you can always look them up, that the discipline of being able to remember like that is a real important skill that helps the mind discipline itself. Um, and there's some insights from the Dalai Lama that are so right on, that are so uh, perfect. Like his insight that um, uh, being compassionate to others will also be what makes you happiest. Mm-hmm. So you can do it. You can be compassionate to others because you want to be charitable and good to others. Or you can be compassionate to others because you want something just for yourself. You're, you're selfish. You can be compassionate for selfish reasons. Um, and it works. You know, if you're nice to others, you feel better. Uh, and it can be as simple as just saying hello to a stranger on the street. When that stranger reacts with a big smile, you feel good. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you pay for the, st- the cup of coffee on the person in line behind you. You don't know that person, but you feel good, especially when you see the surprise of the person when they come to the counter. Um, and also his insight about the stupidity of holding grudges, hmm. right? Who gets hurt when you're holding the grudge? You get hurt. You stay in this locked, angry place, whereas, the well, the person you're holding the grudge about is happily going on about their life. And um, it's, it's, there's a lot of wisdom there. And it's very pragmatic. It's yeah. very pragmatic. And if you try it, you see the wisdom of it. You know, if I say to you, the best way to make yourself happy is to try to make others happy. You say, well, that sounds very nice, but I don't believe it. But if you try it, 
then you see that it really does work. And there's actually a lot of research on this now. They've looked into what are the happiest uh, people in old age. And the happiest people are rarely the people who've accumulated the most possessions, who have risen to the highest heights in their career. It's the people who feel like they've had a, a fulfilling life in the sense of doing something they felt made a difference of being part of something larger than themselves, some cause, some belief. It could be a religious belief. It could be Greenpeace. It could be almost anything, Mm -hmm. but something where they felt they were making a difference, regardless of whether they made much money or little money doing it. It's feeling like I mattered. Mm -hmm. And you could have a lot of money and feel like you never really mattered. Something that intrigues me about some of the research I've heard about happiness um, is – also, that there's not necessarily a correlation between the people who had happy childhoods and good parents, right, <laughs> and functioning families, that it really is how you've lived your life and the relationships you've formed. Right. Now, um, yeah, it can go any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does matter with how you live your life and what you make of it. And it's really up to you what you make of it. Right? It's your your attitude. You can feel sorry for yourself the whole time. You can decide that I'm going to try to make lemonade out of lemons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also true that people can get deeply hurt in childhood. Right. And have trouble ever being as happy as somebody else who hasn't gone through that horrific right. experience. Right. Right. Um, so how does all of this, the work you do, these experiences you've had out of that, um, how does this um, affect the way you as an adult at this stage in your life think about you know, what it means to be human um, or your own further development? Because we do know now, and this is related to what we were just talking about, that we don't stop changing and growing. How do you think you're different because of what you know as a scientist? Can I change tapes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to think. <laughs> Thank you. That was a good time to do that. <laughs> this is really I fun. I appreciate that. This yeah. might be too much of a tangent, but I thought I wrote it big enough. Oh, and somehow I have to work in my conference. Well, if we don't get to the conference, I'll work. I'll okay. I'll mention it. Okay. Um, and we can mention it on the website as well. Thank you. I can't. He's doing it okay on water. Yeah, I All haven't right. touched it. That makes sense, Krista. I'm trying to. We'll see. What time do we actually? We do need to get you out of here by oh. five after. Yeah. Okay. All right. We have to talk about God and things like that, Mitch. So we we may not get to it. <laughs> I want. I'd love to send you this uh, show we did, Stuart Brown. I think you'd enjoy oh, it because it's I'd about it. play from a totally different direction. But it's it's very uh, you know it, it's evocative in terms of what you're doing. Oh, as good, well. yeah, great. And he's they're working to get funding for more scientific research on that aspect of it. I like. I love listening to you. Your oh. voice sounds so nice when you're talking. Oh, it's thank just you. the tone of it. It sounds lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Are we ready? Yes. Okay. All right. 
Okay, so your big question, how does this change you? How do you live differently? I don't know how I live differently because of my work. Um, I don't know. I can't. I don't have any any sense of how I'd live differently because you, of my work. Do you work. think differently about you know vit- human vitality and character, even in terms of yourself? Are there things that you're that you uh, appreciate differently because of what? what you've learned through working with children? Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that, that I've learned. It's not in my research, but in my reading. It was when I first read Carol Gilligan, right. who talked about the difference in moral reasoning between men and women. And I thought about the way that the Jewish rabbi, Hillel, um, stated the golden rule. He said, if you could summarize Judaism standing on one foot... It would be do not do unto others as you wouldn't have them do unto you. And if then you think about the golden rule as stated by Jesus, which is in the positive. Right. Do unto and that's a really profound difference because the way Hillel stated it is really the way the US is organized in the government, which is do no harm. Um, so we have the uh, division of power between the branches so that no branch should have enough power to do harm. Right. Um, we uh, are tending to have specific guidelines for judges so no judge could do any harm. But the injunction of Jesus is not to stop with just doing no harm. It's to do positive good, do unto others as you'd like people to do to you, which is not just not harm you. That's hardly what I'd like. I'd like people to do things to make me happy. And, you know, then you want to have the least... Uh, rules and limitations on the judge because then you want the wise judge to have the most leeway mm. to make the best decision and so that's informed my life in terms of it's certainly not sufficient to do no harm you need to do good and um, my husband and I actively try to do that when um, well and there is a, I mean in Judaism maybe not in that but there is certainly repair the world oh, there, actually, there is the injunction to do good and to, to, to kun olam and, and the injunction that it's not to you to complete the work but neither are you right. left not to, to right. try it all absolutely yeah. um, uh, and that was always part of my upbringing my family never had much money, but my mother would always give a lot of sadaka, a lot of charity, because that's what you do. That's right. just what you do. Um, so that that's that's a connection with mm-hmm. my work. And so let me ask the question this way: like um, knowing, as you know, from a very special vantage point, that um, that play um, is an essential part of us. As much as, I don't know, what we think of as intelligence, right, or capability, um, you are um, uh, a practicing Jew. You, you said this is an important part of your identity. I mean, so how do you think differently? Does that um, have a theological implication for you? Do you think differently about the nature of God, um, knowing what you, you know, having this fuller sense of um, of what we are as human beings and what makes us complete. These are hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, I don't think that my scientific work has particularly informed my religious perspective or my image, my understanding of God. Um, a, a lot of my perspective is based on um, Abraham Heschel and what mm -hmm. he wrote. Um, and one of the things he wrote is, I think, very applicable to child development. Because he said the act teaches you the meaning of the act. He said, um, I don't care why you're doing the good deed. Do the good deed. And the example he gives is a musician may be playing a concert to earn a lot of money. But if when he's playing the concert, he's concentrating on all the money he's going to make, he's going to play a lousy concert. While he's playing the concert, he has to be in the moment. He has to be concentrated on the music. And if he's concentrated on the music, he'll play well. So he talks about how the act can purify the motive if you really do the act fully. And I don't know who he was talking to in this essay, but I imagine that he was talking to super sincere Jewish theology students <laughs> who were very worried that they wanted to be good people and do good deeds, but that doing the good deed made them feel good. And so were they doing it for selfish reasons or were they doing it for altruistic reasons? And I can imagine Rabbi Heschel telling them, don't worry about it. Forget about it. I don't care why you're doing it. Just do it. It doesn't matter. If you do it with your whole heart, it will purify your motive. Um, and that's a wonderful lesson for children that say, I want you to do this. And you say, well, you know, I'm only doing it for you. How, you know, how is that going to be any good? And you say, just do it. Do, just do it fully and do it. And you'll get something out of the doing. Um, I think that that's, that's worthwhile, that the act, the doing, the, the actual doing is absolutely critical and will transform you. Hmm. I, um, yeah, I think of my own children. I think my son is very uh, resistant in, in a way that I wasn't, and I think my generation wasn't, to external expectations. You know, he doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. This is a little different from what you just said, but it, you know, for me what's really effective with him is to say, do the right thing. You know what the right thing is. Right. So he's not doing it for you or he's your expectations. He's not doing it for me. He's doing it for himself. And he's not even necessarily doing it because he feels like it. Uh-huh. That's right. But there's something in, inherent in his makeup that makes that a powerful suggestion. Yeah. That's great. Hmm. How old is he? he he's, uh, he's nine. No, he's ten. <laughs> he's ten. <laughs> And also something that I thought a lot about as I was this is divergence, but we have a few minutes. Um, he still does a huge amount of dramatic play, both with himself alone and um, and also with his friends. I, I would say less with his friends now as he uh -huh. gets older. But um, I I do I do find that quite mysterious and intriguing. And I, I think I'm a little bit surprised. I, I think I'm, and this is probably my problem. But I, I was I was. More surprised that he's done it as a boy than that my daughter did it as uh -huh. a girl. Because uh -huh. I, I think you think of girls playing. Um, but I love in this conversation with you and reading about your work and also with Stuart Brown, uh, thinking about play as 
something that that actually is educational in the best sense of the word. Um, Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's really wonderful. It's liberating to right. think we let our children play, okay. and that's great. And we also tend to have this terrible notion that anything that's important can't be fun. Yeah, right. You know, right. it's got to be torture right. if it's... And that's such a shame. You should school should be joyful. Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. Then the children will want to be there. You learn more. Your brain works better. Your your prefrontal cortex goes offline if you're stressed, even mildly stressed. Huh. So the more you stress children in school, the worse their executive function is going to be, and the worse their higher cognitive functions are going to work. They work better if they're not stressed, if they're happy, and. You can do things joyfully or you can do things making somebody miserable. Why not do it joyfully? Right. It can be fun. Huh. It's so much fun to learn. <laughs> You're right, but that gets lost. Um, you actually, we, we did a program on Abraham Joshua Heschel last year, which was really wonderful. And we've had Rachel Naomi Remen on the show. And you put together this beautiful packet for the Dalai Lama. I had your note here somewhere. Um, when you were going to Dharamsala and you you talked you said that you wanted to share with him some writings that had been informative for you, not all from Jewish tradition, but from Jewish tradition, including Heschel and uh, Rachel Naomi Remen. And I just I wanted to end with you. You um, you, you co- included these words of Rachel Naomi Remen: All life has in it the dimension of the unknown. It is a thing forever unfolding. It seems important to consider the possibility that science may have defined life too small. And I just wondered, looking back on the trajectory of your work, um, you know, what have you learned in the course of your research, which really is very cutting edge, um, that you realize science had defined too small sort of at the outset of your career? Well, the um, uh, little um, dedication at the beginning of my doctoral dissertation says, has the quote from someone else, I forget who right now, that no answer is a complete or final one. And um, uh, I think that um, there's so many times when we thought we understood something and then we realized we were totally wrong. Um, I think that it's chutzpah to think that um, we know the we know all the answers or that we've understood something perfectly. And I think it's wonderful that there's mystery out there, that there's surprises. I love being surprised. And actually, you learn much more from the surprises than you do from what you expected, right? If, if what you expected happens, then you just have confirmation you were right. But if what you didn't expect happens, then it says, ah, this is an opportunity to learn because... I was wrong. I expected something else, and this happened. So I think mysteries are just wonderful. And um, it's very interesting, because when I made this book for the Dalai Lama, I put a lot of love and time and effort into it. And my husband said, who came with me to Dharmasala, said, Mm -hmm. if you're going to give him a present, I want to give him a present too. So he wanted to give him a kite, because he didn't think the Dalai Lama got to spend enough time Playing now, your husband is he a geneticist? Yeah, he was trained as a geneticist, okay. and yes. he's Mormon. He's Mormon. Okay, yes. all right. And, and his name is Don. Okay, I don't know if he would define himself in those terms, but okay. but he's my husband. Okay, and so then he found online that he could get a package of ten plain undecorated kites for very inexpensively. So he asked me if I could find classes of school children to decorate them. So I contacted um, a colleague, Kim Schoenert Reichel. And she helped me find a class of quite um, 
children with developmental disorders, many of them ADHD, who were either not on medication or on reduced medication because they were doing mindfulness. And so they had heard of the Dalai Lama, and they were very excited to be decorating these kites. And there were two children per kite. So on one side, they did self-portraits, so it looked like a Picasso, because oh. half of the kite was one <laughs> child's face, and half of the kite was the other child's face. And um, anyway, so my husband brings all these to Dharamsala, and we get a private audience with His Holiness. And we had the wisdom not to bring all the kites with us to the audience, because the Dalai Lama said thank you, but it was very clear he wasn't going to fly any kites. He was going to put them in a drawer. <laughs> so after that, we went to visit Matu Ricard uh, in Kathmandu, where he has a Tibetan monastery. And his, he has many humanitarian projects in connection with that. And one of them are schools for poor children, any background, doesn't matter, religious or ethnic. They're called bamboo schools because the buildings are all made out of bamboo. So we went to these bamboo schools, and we brought the rest of the kites, and we gave it to the children there. They had never flown kites before, and they were so happy to be <laughs> flying these kites. And that, too, was so happy to see the children so happy. Yeah. And we took photos and videos, and I brought them back to the class in Vancouver of the children who had been studying mindfulness, and I showed them the pictures, and they were so happy to see how happy they had made the other children. That's a great story. And one of them said, you know, they're on the other side of the world, but we're all connected. Hmm. So it's a really nice story, and it was all my husband's idea with the kind. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, I think we should finish, but is there anything else you want to say? Anything this has sparked or any place you want to go that we haven't gone? No, except that... Um, I think besides um, ignoring a lot of the wisdom of past generations, I think we also ignore the wisdom of people who don't have the fancy degrees and the fancy positions. And I think that's a shame because a lot of the people who um, are on the front lines working with kids, struggling to make ends meet, have a great deal of wisdom. And I think that we should be listening to that and honoring that more. And that's, is that something you think about as you do your work? Because they're actually the, it's actually the teachers who are going to be implementing these cutting edge right. approaches you know, we go based into on science. daycares and preschools and we work with children. And we see these amazing women. There's one woman who emigrated from Sierra Leone who wanted Montessori manipulable material. And she couldn't afford it here. So she managed to get it from her country. And whenever a child in her class is having trouble at home, she takes the child into her own home. She's had several foster children from this school. You know, she's, the, these women go way beyond, you know, what, what, you know, the minimal job requirements and give of themselves and of their love. And they get so little recognition for it and so little money for it. And it's such a shame. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see them get more recognition and get more appreciated and more recognized. Um, the summer before I started my dissertation, I worked as a hired hand on a cattle ranch in central Oregon. And I found the ranch because the wife of the ranch owner was a, a graduate of Radcliffe. So she was in the Radcliffe alumni directory. But I shared the bunkhouse with two boys whose who's, um, mother had never left the area. She had the first boy when she was 16. She'd never gone to college. I don't think she graduated high school. But she was a wise woman. She was much wiser than this Radcliffe graduate. <laughs> right. 
And if, uh, as your work suggests, or might continue to suggest, if, if, and as many people are thinking, we may need a real serious overhaul of the very idea of education in our time, those are going to be the kinds of people on the front lines making that happen. Yes, yes. And I, I think we could also um, take advantage of all the older people mm-hmm. who are retired from their jobs and would like to contribute and don't see any way to contribute. Right. They could help in the schools. They could read to children or help them with simple skills or just spend time with them. It would be good for them and good for the children. Mm -hmm. There's um, um, something called Experience Corps in the United States, which is actually starting to do that. Hmm. Hmm. They find it is good for the old people and it's good for the children. That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. Okay. And we have to get you downstairs.